Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. SavvyCal is a new scheduling tool that helps you optimize your calendar to do your best work. Let's face it, most 30-minute meetings could have been 15 minutes instead, and most 60-minute meetings could have been 30 minutes instead. With SavvyCal, you can offer multiple meeting durations on the same scheduling link so recipients can book as little or as much time as they need with you. Create a free account at SavvyCal.com EIM, and you can also get your first month of a paid account free by using the code EIM. On the show today is Nicholas Scalise. Nicholas is the founder of Earnworthy and Growth Marketer. I wanted to bring him on because he's been working with small businesses for years, specializing in lead generation, landing pages, and conversion rate optimization. You'll hear about the secret marketing hack to growing a marketing agency, his framework for crafting high converting landing pages, and cracking the code to generating leads for law firms. So, to start out, I like asking my guests, did you ever think that you'd be doing marketing for a living? No, absolutely not. This is definitely uh, plan B for me. <laughs> plan B. What was plan A then? Plan A, believe it or not, was uh, I wanted to be a police officer. Scalise rhymes with police, right? Is there that uh, where that came from? Maybe that was a little subconscious thing going on there. But yeah, I, I went to college uh, for criminal justice. I went to grad school for public administration. I was accepted to the police academy and it just, you know, it, it didn't end up working out due to an injury. And uh, this was mm. sort of my backup plan. I ran with it and I'm really grateful that it worked out because I am very happy with with what I'm doing with Earnworthy, with Growth Marketer. And it just goes to show, you know, you should always be prepared for whatever life throws at you and sort of have a backup plan. Mm, yeah. So why marketing though? I mean, police academy doesn't, or the police department doesn't work out. You know, there's a million and one other types of careers or skills that you could pursue. What was it about marketing that, that drew you to it? You know, I, I always was fascinated by web design and just the internet. I remember, you know, getting my first computer in two, uh, 1998, I believe it was, Windows 98 and building websites. And then in college, as I was trying to uh, pursue a law enforcement career, I started a side business where I would go to local businesses um, and I would ask if they needed help with social media marketing. And this was back in 2009, where you could walk into the average business and say, hey, you know, I've noticed you're not very active on Twitter or Facebook, and you could sell them uh, for 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month, whatever, to manage their social media marketing. And that was like a little side hustle I did hmm. as an undergrad in college. And so when I realized the police academy wasn't going to be an option due to an injury, I said, you know, what are the other things that I was good at in college? And that was really the thing that I had the most experience with. And I had my uh, friend from college, and we started a little side business doing social media marketing full time. And then that sort of evolved into what I'm doing now. I love that. That was the good old days, right? When you can just like walk into a business and be like, <laughs> let me blow your mind by all the mm -hmm. digital marketing we can do and going from zero to one and people were just, it was yeah. so easy. You know, it was <laughs> they weren't getting spammed every day like they are now with, uh, oh, we'll manage your social media for $5 a month right. you know, and we'll outsource it. So it was a yeah. different time. Different, different time. Can you walk me through a little bit about like how you got to where you are today. Today, you're the founder of Earnworthy, a growth marketing agency. You also have Growth Marketer, which is we'll get to as you know, you have the podcast and a newsletter. What were the steps that, after jumping into marketing, got you to where you are today? Yeah, so I 
did that side hustle for a little while back in 2009. You know, I graduated from college in 2011 and I got a job at an agency, partially because of the experience that I had gathered just doing the social media marketing. And it was an agency in my town, Boca Raton, here in Florida that I really respected. And that I think was the catalyst to everything that followed because when you're working at an agency, you're exposed to so much so quickly that you, I, you know, I like to tell people if you spend one year at an agency, that's really like three years of experience hmm. in like a, an in-house role in a marketing role. Cause you're just doing everything. You know, there'd be days where I, w I was an account manager. So there would be days where I was managing like 12 clients and, you know, just exposed to the pay-per-click side, the conversion optimization side, the SEO, the social media side. And so I really got a lot of experience and it let me sort of figure out what I wanted to focus on. And that's where I first got introduced to the concept of landing pages. And then after a while, I realized, hey, you know, I could probably do this on my own because not everyone stays at agencies forever. And then I said, you know, let me go try the free freelancing route. And at first I was doing just a very broad type of marketing, like inbound marketing. And then eventually that evolved into growth marketing. And then I would say about six years ago, I said, you know, we really need to focus even more narrowly on on one really core service. And, and it was landing pages. That was what I've always been uh, most passionate about. And so we specialized in conversion optimization specifically with landing pages. And then to really get even more focused, a big part of it was finding the right partners. And when I say partners, I'm not talking about like, people that work with you. I'm talking about companies that you can associate with. I think mm. that's a key. So early on, I got this really cool partnership with, with Unbounce. And that's where we do a lot of work with Unbounce, which is a uh, very popular landing page tool. And I'd say even today, about probably 70% of the work we do is for Unbounce customers or it's on the Unbounce platform. So uh, wow. you know, there's they have an agency partner program. They have an experts program. They have a pro marketplace. And so we are like really embedded sort of all in into that unbounced ecosystem. Yeah, that's fascinating. I want to go back really quick to yeah. one thing you mentioned about agencies. Because I, I completely agree. Like everyone who I tell like interested in marketing or just starting out, I, I always tell them the same like two things, which is one, start marketing like yourself, just like get something out there, yep. create a blog, a podcast, mm -hmm. you know, create your own Shopify store, like just like, you know, start getting your reps and sets yeah. in. The second thing is either join a startup or an agency because both yeah. will put you to work. You'll get a broad <laughs> range of experience. You'll figure out what you like and what you don't like because marketing is very, very, there's so many different facets and dimensions to it that it's hard mm -hmm. to really niche down before you've kind of uh, seen what's out there and you've, you've gotten some experience and kind of dip your toes into a lot of different types of things. So completely agree, 100% agree. There's like the old... I don't know if I made it up or if someone else did, but that, you know, startup years are like dog years. It's like seven years for every one year. Yep. Same thing with agencies, right? It's like true. Yeah. it really, really puts you to work and you get, you get a lot of exposure. Going back to uh, the partnerships, I think that's really, really fascinating. Like this is more a comment than anything, but you know, you hear a lot about like people developing Shopify apps, for example, mm -hmm. like you can kind of just get that built in distribution because you're building on top of a platform. Yeah, I never actually considered that ecosystem. Right. I never considered that for like a services business, like an agency mm -hmm. yeah. where you kind of get the distribution of the technology, like unbounce and people saying, Hey, I need help using this technology or basically just yeah. put it, you know, it's the really services that's related of, to it. Yeah. That's why I don't, I don't really like mentioning it too much because now everyone is going to do it. But yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really, I'd say the number one hack, if we want to call it a hack 
to scaling out of that freelancer niche into more of a, a structured agency type business. And like we've sort of gone a little bit overboard with certifications and partnerships now, because even though Unbounce is our primary partnership, as you know, we are Unbounce agency partners, you know, I'm also an active campaign certified consultant, a CallRail partner. Uh, I was a Zapier certified expert for a while. We were, we're, we're Google partners. There's probably some others that I'm forgetting, but those are the, oh, Landbot, Landbot experts. So we sort mm -hmm. of, whenever I see a partner program that's uh, connected to a tool or a service that we use regularly, I try to go get it. And it's made a huge difference in terms of inbound leads and just credibility in the industry. Hmm. Yeah, I'd never, to be honest, I think, because I've never, I haven't worked for an agency and I haven't been mm -hmm. an agency owner myself. I think when I, when I saw those types of badges, I always thought maybe it was some sort of like social proof in it. And it is, but mm -hmm. primarily I think it's uh, the real value there is actually in sort of like the lead distribution and yeah. exposure to their customers and basically being able to, some, you know, for them to say, Hey, you need help, you know, go talk to one of our partners. Yeah, one of our it helps their support experts. team immensely. Yeah. Cause they're a lot of these companies, the support team doesn't want to handle the, the strategic questions or the questions that are not technical problems. And so this gives them a, an avenue to refer them out to a vetted partner rather than just say, ah, oh, go, you know, try your hand at, at Upwork or try your hand at just Googling it. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's interesting. I, I think I've, like you said, maybe uncovered one of the, the hacks or the secrets to, yeah. you know, distribution and marketing for an agency. But if we can talk about it a little bit more, like what does it mean and what does it take to become like a partner essentially for one of these companies where they will hand you off work and send you leads uh, using one of their tools like Unbounce or Active Campaign or right, there's HubSpot out there and mm -hmm. it's yeah. basically one for, for all there's these big, lot, yeah. big companies. Yeah. If they're a big SaaS product, uh, then usually they have a partner program. And there's even a site, I believe Alex Glenn runs a program called partnerprograms.io where he obsesses over this stuff. And it's really cool if you, if you want to learn more about it, but yeah, so it basically, the requirements vary dramatically depending on the program. So Unbounce, for instance, is relatively selective in terms of who they let in, but there's no like test that you have to take, but then there's other programs like active campaign, which we just renewed our active campaign certified consultant program just literally a week ago where you do have to pay. And a lot of the bigger programs, you do have to pay for it. But I would say the majority of them, you don't have to pay. But with Active Campaign, you have to take a test and you have to record a, an on screen video showing how you would set up an automation because hmm. they don't want you to just, you know, it's not just a rubber stamp where, oh, you're a partner um, or you're a certified consultant. You need to really show that you, you're able to help uh, the clients. And then some other programs have like a tiered structure, like CallRail has a tiered structure where, you know, depending on how much business you bring in. So it's almost like it has like an affiliate component tied to it. You're put into a different tier and then you get additional levels of access. So maybe you'll get access to their Slack channel if you bring in a certain amount of business. I like Unbounce because it's sort of a little more less structured, although they, they're very particular with who, I think there's only like 12 Unbounce agency partners in the US. So there's not that wow. many altogether. Yeah, I could be wrong about that. At least when we joined, it was it was pretty early on. So yeah, I mean, it's amazing how, how much it varies when you look at different partner programs. Some are very strict, some require tests, others, there are some out there that are that are sort of a rubber stamp. And those I try to stay away from because it's like, you know, why bother if everyone's going to get it? Right, because then there's more competition, right? The more yeah. kind of exclusive yeah. it is and the more hoops you have to jump through, that means that it's more business for you and it's easier exactly. for you to win that yeah. business. What does that actually look like? I mean, it, 
obviously it's not going to be an overnight thing, but is it essentially, you know, you're now an unbalanced or active campaign partner and they, you know, have someone who comes through support who says, Hey, uh, I have a problem with this or I'm, I'm looking for someone to help me with X, Y, and Z. And they, you know, CC you in an email intro or do people kind of go around and they're like, Hey, I saw you are an, an unbalanced partner. I'm interested in this. Like, is, is the relationship a little bit more indirect or is there like a direct, you know, they're sending you leads left and right? Yeah, good question. There, there, it's both. It varies. I would say the majority of leads, though, are the ones where they're just finding you through the partner directory. Um, and Unbounce is in the process of updating their partner directory and launching a whole refresh of that. So it's going to be even more visible. But I would say in terms of the quality of leads, the ones that are that, that do have that warm handoff or that warm introduction from someone on the support team are much more valuable because it's like a direct recommendation from Unbounce. And so, you know, those clients are, or those prospects are much more likely to become a client than if they were just finding you on the directory. Because I find that people that reach out on the directory, they're usually messaging a lot of partners and they're just mm. sort of seeing what all the different options are versus if someone from the support team says, hey, this is a partner we have. But again, they want to be fair. So it's not like they're going to send you all the leads. They are going to sort of distribute it uh, among the partners. And it's different depending on the program and, and how the support team works. Sometimes it's random. Sometimes certain reps have a certain preference with who they want to refer out. Sometimes it's based on the specialties that we do. Like, you know, we don't do a lot of e-commerce work. So an e-commerce lead would not be a good fit for us, but we do a lot of lead gen. So, you know, that would be a good fit. But yeah, I'd say it really varies. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome to hear and appreciate you sharing some of the secrets and some of the hacks for, for the rest of us. But I'd love to get into a little bit more of the tactics of landing pages, CRO, sort of what you do day to day with Earnworthy. And I was kind of poking around, do my research and notice you have a couple of, you know, frameworks and sort of like mm -hmm. methods, philosophies. One of them that piqued my curiosity was the ADO marketing method, A-D-E-O. Could you walk me through that? Is that still like something that you use and, and reference daily? Absolutely. Yeah. So AD, it's so actually we have the ADEO method. It used to be called DDIO. So <laughs> sometimes I get hung up on the, on the acronyms, but it stands for audit, develop, experiment, and optimize. And it's the internal process that we've used for the last probably three years at Earnworthy, whenever we're taking a client through one of our longer, more strategic engagements. Cause we do a lot of like one-off projects where it's just a quick landing page rebuild or an optimization project. But if we're doing more of a strategic project, really helping with growth strategy, really helping with that ongoing growth experimentation, then we're going to take them through this process where, you know, the first step is to audit what they're currently doing. And what we find is a lot of clients still live in tactics land where they're focused on the hacks and the tactics, and they're not really focused on the strategy, which is really important. You got to have a good offer. You got to know who your audience is. You got to do all that research up front. So that's really where that audit comes in handy. Then we do our development, which could look like building out various assets, whether it be lead magnets, landing pages, strategic blueprints, whatever it may be. Then we move on to that ex experimentation phase where we take those assets that we've created, usually a landing page or a lead magnet or something, and we'll put together a testing program and we'll run that test and drive traffic to it. And that's where we're really going to sort of see what's working and what's broken. And then the final step optimizes where now that everything is in motion and we've tested some things, now we're going to look for what's working, what's not working, and we're going to try to improve uh, upon whatever we can and find 
whatever the the growth lever is that we need to scale to get them the, the best results possible. And so that optimization and that experimentation phase really go hand in hand. And then it's just a sort of a continuous cycle where we go back to the drawing board, mm. we audit what we've done, and then we develop some more assets, do some more experimentations, optimize, and it creates this sort of growth flywheel effect. Yeah, yeah. Speaking from experience, uh, it all sounds fine and dandy uh, in theory, but do you have any like concrete examples or case studies of kind of this process from start to finish? And I know you probably can't give specific names, right? And there's sort of, you know, classification and anonymity you want, you want to maintain, but concrete examples of like what this looks like day to day, actually put it into practice. Yeah. So one example that comes to mind is a law firm that we worked with a few months back where they came to us with a very specific request. They actually found us through the, the Landbot directory. So again, mm. it's from that, that partner program lead generation framework. And they came with a very specific request that they wanted a complete redesign of their landing page. They, they were currently using Landbot. They just wanted it looking different. And we basically went back to the drawing board and we said, you know, first you need to figure out what is the right offer for the, for the law firm, because we realized that, you know, they had a very generic offer. It was like, contact us. And they were asking 50 different questions on the, on the land bot chat bot. And it was just very convoluted. Didn't make a lot of sense. It didn't have a lot of internal value. And so, you know, that's a good example where we said, you know, let's take a step back because I'm sure many agencies would have said, sure, you know, we'll take your money, we'll do a redesign, we'll make it look great, but we'll keep sort of that core messaging and that core strategy in place that you came to us with since you didn't really ask us to do anything about that. And this is where I think it's really important for agencies to push back. And I've even, I remember early on, I did not push back with a lot of clients. I was sort of that, that order taker where it's like, yes, you need a landing page, sure, let's do it. And I had clients that actually said, no, I want you to push back. I want you to give a little bit more strategic insight. And so now that's like, become a habit of mine of very politely pushing back. So in that case, you know, we said, why don't we do an audit first of what's working for you? What are the very best offers that are working for the law firm? And when I say offer, it could be, you know, maybe a free consultation, maybe um, driving more people towards the phone call um, mm. route rather than the form fill. Maybe it's deploying live chat to get some of that more high intent, urgent action going on on the landing page. So we did this audit. We listened to some of the phone call recordings that they had, and we figured out what the number one thing is that people wanted. They wanted their questions answered quickly by an actual attorney. And so that's what we built into the chatbot. And we tried to get them connected to an attorney as quick as possible using just a really good intake process with law firms. I know that's like a whole nother thing, but intake is really important. So, you know, there's mm. capturing the lead and then there's what happens after you capture the lead. And so we worked with their intake team to really refine that process and make sure that an actual attorney was going to follow up with them as quickly as possible. And throughout this entire process, we actually saw a 122% conversion lift from what they had originally. So it worked. We took them through that process and they were very happy with it. So yeah, hopefully that's a that's a good example. That's yeah, fantastic. I actually I really really love case studies and examples from kind of these like tried and true mom and pop small businesses, mm -hmm. uh, like law firms, right? Where it's just like there's there's no need for like cutting it. Let's just get back to the basics and let's figure out what works yeah. and let's really be exactly. objective about it. And that's a, yeah, a fantastic fantastic example. I'm wondering like when you're, I'd love to go through each one of those a little bit further. So audit development, experimentation, optimize. When you're doing an audit, 
what are like the common uh, mistakes or maybe even like surprising kind of pitfalls that people fall into that changing, you know, optimizing, tweaking, improving, have like these big outsized results? Yeah, that's a really good question. And this is actually something that's been on my mind probably more than anything else hmm. this year. And so I, I actually want to build a course around this to address the most common issues that we see at a strategic level. And so I've sort of figured out like there's seven problems that we see again and again. So I can go through them real quick yeah. and let me know if you want to go in deep on any of them. Number one is people are targeting the wrong audience. So it's all about that audience. Number two is they're running bad offers. That's a huge one where we see all the time. There's just not enough effort put into what your offer is or how you're positioning the offer. Number three is you're not focusing on meaningful messaging. Number four is you're letting the infrastructure become an afterthought. And I know that sounds a little technical, but basically like, you know, you can have the best strategy in the world, but you have to have a, a good platform to deliver it on. It needs to hmm. be something that's easy to use and, and has a high level of usability. Number five is you're not optimizing towards specific behaviors. And this is where it gets into marketing psychology and a lot of what you talk about with mental models. Like, I think that's where that ties in. Number six is people are using the wrong channels at the wrong time. So maybe the campaign is going to work perfectly on Google, but they're advertising primarily on LinkedIn, right? Yeah. Wrong channel. So it's not the campaign, it's the channel. And then the last one is they're ignoring the data. They're just sort of throwing things out there, but they're not testing and they're not looking at both the quantitative and the qualitative data and the quantitative and qualitative data. So one of those seven issues is usually the, the problem. And mm -hmm. a lot of times it's more than one of those issues combined. Yeah. Yeah. I want to dig into to two of those if we can. Yeah. The first one is the the audience. I, I could see again, like in theory, you know, targeting the wrong audience, maybe the wrong type of person. You you think your product is or service is for one type of people, maybe it's for another. Are there any mm -hmm. concrete examples you have of like kind of like these pivots, right, of of marketing where like you you're actually uh, marketing the product to a completely different set of people that you know resulted in a in a big result or something something positive? Yeah, I see. On a on a broad level. A lot of times we see like intent levels not matching up with the offer. So mm. what I mean by that is Facebook is a very passive audience. It's, it's a great traffic source. It's a great high volume traffic source, but it's a very passive traffic source because people are not looking for what you're offering. That's why it's good for retargeting. It's good for um, getting a message in front of people again and again after they've already seen it somewhere else. Um, and it's good for cold you know, offers that are very top of funnel. But a lot of times we see people sort of jump on the Facebook bandwagon because that's what's hot right now when really um, they need a much higher intent audience. And that would be probably a Google search campaign, for instance. So that's like one of the first things we always try to do with whenever doing audience work, we'll try to figure out what's the intent level of the offer. What are they, where are they currently advertising? And is there a message match? And is there a, a good match between, you know, the, the strategy and the actual deployment of that, of that audience? Yeah. One of the other ones that piqued my interest was creating meaningful messaging. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. The book that I probably learned the most from regarding this is called Building a Story Brand by Donald Miller. A relatively new book. Story Brand is a framework for thinking about messaging. And Donald Miller, he's an author who created this marketing framework based on the, the elements that go into a good story. So I recommend everyone check out building a story brand. I try to use that all the time, but some very basic principles like clarity, you know, Donald Miller likes to say, if you confuse, you lose. And so often I see 
very confusing messaging, especially on landing pages where you have a fraction of a second to get someone's attention. And it's like, you know, the first thing you see is some generic statement that's like, we're going to help you synergize your ecosystem. And it's like, what the heck does that even mean? <laughs> so simplify your messaging, make it clear, focus on one specific thing at a time. That's been really helpful. And then another thing that I think is really helpful when learning how to get better at messaging is to look at what Eugene Schwartz created with the, with the stages of awareness, which is from his book, Breakthrough Advertising, which was written all the way back in 1966. And he created this framework uh, called the five stages of awareness, where he basically says, you know, people go through this awareness level from unaware all the way up to most aware. And your job as the marketer is to figure out what point they're at. Maybe they're unaware, maybe they're problem aware, maybe they're product aware, maybe they're solution aware, whatever. Your job is to meet them at that stage that they're in and then try to move them to the next stage. Uh, copy hackers. Joanna Weeb does a really good job of sort of taking that framework and modernizing it and injecting some really good copywriting best practices there. But I think combined, when you look at the simplicity of what StoryBrand does with the framework approach of what Eugene Schwartz does in break, Breakthrough Advertising, when taken as a, as a whole, I think that's a really good framework to clarify and simplify your messaging. Yeah. Love those. I think that the five stages of awareness is probably like one of the most key frameworks and mental models, just as a marketer, like, okay, look, yeah. this is your job, like move people to become more aware. Like that's the only thing right. to figure out, Simple. forget all the other stuff about funnels and whatnot, like just make people more aware and figure out how to get them yeah. from one stage to the next. Um, and speaking of which, one of the, the next steps kind of in your process is development. One of the things I wonder about all the time is like, there's kind of like these trends or maybe like fads with kind of like what the latest package of an offer is. Maybe it's an ebook, maybe it's a white paper, mm -hmm. maybe it's a free strategy call. Like they kind of like, there's different flavors all the time. What do you see working today? Obviously everyone needs a landing page, kind of like, yep. uh, you know, baseline. What are the other things that you're other assets that you're building for clients? Yeah, this is interesting because we, we've done a lot of testing with lead magnets for the Growth Marketer brand and for another brand prior to Growth Marketer was called Landing Page School, which sort of evolved into Growth Marketer. And we did a lot of training or a lot of testing with different lead magnets. And going into it, I thought, okay, the more information I can give, the better. You know, So I created these really cool framework eBooks and gave them away for free as a, as a lead capture uh, tool. And what I find, what I found was that simplicity really wins out because it wasn't until I created a landing page checklist, which was literally like just a few pages of just bullet points. That's when everything took off. And that was our, that to this day, that is still our best, uh, converting lead hmm. magnet for growth marketer. It's a landing page checklist. I think right now it converts at like 46%. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's not bad. And so I would say, try something simple, even if you have all these ideas for different frameworks you can create. If we're talking about lead generation, simplicity is key. And so, yeah, don't, don't overcomplicate it. Yeah. Uh, that's a really key one. I feel like honestly that, that right there is like such a, a huge insight because even I'm, I'm realizing this as myself going through it for swipe files is that like complexity just creeps into everything Yeah, and uh, marketing, especially like you want to get all fancy and you want to have like these really, you know, technically complicated, coordinated, you know, lead funnels and drip campaigns and all these things that are, but it's like, just put up a checklist <laughs> or, yeah. or like for swipe files, I, I, I've been experimenting with the landing page to 
uh, improved newsletter signups. Mm-hmm. And at first I had this big long page and then I went more to like really copy heavy page. And then mm-hmm. I was like, screw it. I'm just going to create something. It was actually after talking with Heaton Shaw when I noticed that all of his landing pages were just like above the fold. It was like three sentences, basically like headline yeah. subheadline, call to action. Like Substack style. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Substack style. I was like, I'm going to try that. And immediately the conversion rate like tripled overnight, basically, yeah. uh, because it's so simple. It's like, well, what else do you do on the page except for fill out the form? Right. <laughs> and, and sometimes if you oversell a simple offer, it comes off as um, untrustworthy because it's like, why mm. are you pushing so hard to get me to sign up for your newsletter when it's a free newsletter? Like, come on, just tell me what it is. So, yeah, there's definitely a correlation between the complexity of your offer and what you're asking the visitor to do and how complex the page needs to be. So if it's a simple offer where it's a free opt-in, you don't have to overcomplicate it. But if it is something more complex, like if you are selling a high ticket course or something like that or high ticket coaching, that's where I think you still need some of that long form copy. Yeah, right, right, right. Moving on to the next one with experimentation. Again, is there like a concrete example or something where you can point to that says, have we tried, you know, these number of different versions of a landing page or an offer? What are you looking for? And like, what's a concrete example of an experiment that actually won out or maybe something that was surprising as well, if you have an example? Yeah. So when thinking about experimentation, I, I know the common thing is like, hey, let's test the button color or let's test <laughs> a different image. I, you know, I'm not really a fan of that. I think there was an article many years ago where HubSpot ran a button color test. And ever since then, clients are obsessed with like, Mm. let's change the button color. If if it's green, it's going to convert more because I read the HubSpot article about it. I would say the number one thing you can test almost always, not always, but almost always is the offer. Because again, the offer is the most important part of your marketing campaign, in my opinion. It's more important even than the messaging um, because the offer is the essence of what the messaging is supposed to represent. So if you can test different offers, and again, going back to the the checklist versus ebook thing, like let's say you're taking the same general idea, helping someone improve their landing pages, but you're packaging it up as a checklist versus an ebook framework of, you know, let's teach you about landing pages or maybe a video course all the same idea it's all trying to help people with the same problem but it's packaging it up a little bit differently in three different offers that is what i would usually test so whenever we're working with clients we're always going to try to test a different offer first that's not always possible because clients don't always have multiple offers or they don't have the ability to quickly build them so then the the next thing i would recommend testing would be the messaging because a lot of times you know we see very complex messaging being applied to something that doesn't need to be complex again going back to to simplicity and then another thing i would recommend testing is the audience so a lot of times it's not even the landing page that's the issue it's who the landing page is being presented to and then the final thing is the framework what i like to call the framework or the infrastructure of the page so you know doing things like taking a long single step form and breaking it up into a multi-step form that's been a huge boost for a lot of clients Hmm. uh, where it's the same questions but they're just presented a little bit differently. And that usually brings a, a pretty good conversion lift. So you can think of all four of those in uh, an acronym called FOAM, F-O-A-M, which stands for framework, offer, audience, and messaging. And so usually every test you can think of regarding a landing page will usually fall into one of those four categories. Oh, I love that. love that so much. You know, I'm all about the frameworks and the, and the acronyms <laughs> and the alliterations. And so FOAM is, uh, is awesome. That last piece of the, the ADO framework is uh-huh. optimize. We're actually 
you know, going back or seeing what's working, what's not working, making tweaks and changes. What does that actually look like in con- with a concrete example or something that you can point to that says, here, here's what you should be looking for at this stage? Yeah. So again, trying to talk in, in a little more gen- general terms, the important distinction we try to make whenever optimizing or running a growth optimization framework is to not ignore the qualitative data. Because I think a lot of times marketers like to focus on quantitative data, the numbers, which they'll usually get from something like uh, Google Analytics, or if you're running an A-B test, you'll see the the number of conversions and the confidence interval and all that stuff. But there's a whole other side of data that I think is even more valuable, especially for smaller companies that don't have a lot of traffic and they might not have enough traffic to run statistically significant A-B tests. So qualitative data, this is the stuff that you can get from a tool like Hotjar, right? Where you're doing a heat map analysis or a click map analysis, or you're reviewing session recordings and seeing how people navigate on a page. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a lot of times when we are optimizing for our clients, we are reviewing this qualitative data very, very intensely on on a weekly basis, trying to find different things that we can then take to the client and say, based on these observations, this is what we recommend and we'll create a hypothesis. And then that's what's gonna take us back uh, full circle to the audit mode. And then we'll build some new assets to test and then we'll experiment. And another point is these days, we actually try not to do like straight up A-B tests as much anymore. Hmm. We like to use a feature of Unbounce, which is called Smart Traffic, shameless plug for Unbounce because we're such Unbounce fanatics over here, but they have this really cool <laughs> testing architecture where instead of doing an, a standard A-B test where you're just directing traffic 50-50 between two different variants, you're actually um, creating multiple variants and leaving it up to their system to determine the right variant for each visitor using machine learning based on all the information that the system knows about the visitor, like their location, time of day, IP address, referral source, all that type of stuff. And we find that using smart traffic has actually helped avoid sort of the randomness of A-B testing and given better conversion lifts for clients in most cases. Yeah, I love that. Shout out to Unbounce. They were actually one of, <laughs> they were the first Swipe Files newsletter sponsor. And, oh, nice. and actually I talked about that feature exactly in the mm-hmm. newsletter. I was pleasantly surprised and I'm actually really excited about it because uh, a previous startup that I worked at was called Cordial and it was email marketing, mm-hmm. basically like a MailChimp on steroids. And actually one of the key features and kind of like ace in the whole kind of competitive advantages we had was multivariate testing for email automations. And time and again, that was like, it was just crazy just being able to set like a bunch of variables and then just let the system figure out which ones were the best for each segments of the audience. Not always just one of, I mean, it blew our minds, but also blew clients' minds to see, oh wow, like this thing we've been running, sort of like in an A-B way or just like not running any tests at all. Like now they actually know what's going to work, especially when you have some sort of robots. Yeah. Some sort of scale. My, my, I've been really, really jaded towards AB testing, but I love the multivariate Mm -hmm. approach because instead of it just, you know, if if you find like, okay, well, variant B performs 20% better than variant Mm -hmm. A. Well, like it's still like not the best for like a subset of people coming yeah. to the page, right? Variant A could be better for a certain subset. Yeah, you just need to identify. That's the problem. Marketers have never been able to identify that. Right. But now due to machine learning and these split second decisions that could be made, now you can identify, you know, this is the best variant for that visitor. And let's send them there instead of just randomly sending them to any which variant. Right, yeah. I love that. So 
Shout out to you. Shout out to Unbounce. Yeah. One of the other things that came to mind was do a lot of lead generation work with a lot of different types of companies and businesses and different industries and uh, geographies. What have you learned about how different types of businesses, what works in a marketing capacity for them differs, you know, for those different types of businesses, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, I think it always comes down to like, what is the problem they're trying to solve? I know you're a fan of like the jobs to be done framework. So I think it always starts there. Like, what is the, the question we're trying to answer for the visitor? And that again, goes back to strategy. Like we don't want to just jump in with tactics and start generating leads, even though that's what clients usually want. We really need to figure it out. So like for law firms, for example, we work with a lot of law firms. That's probably our number one segment of hmm. client type. And what works best for law firms we have found is a free consultation, obviously, you know, it's a simple offer, but the way you deliver it is it has to be very specific. We usually recommend having a form, having a phone call, call to action and having live chat on the page, all set up in a very specific way, not too complex. But by having these three different calls to action combined on the same page that are all really the same call to action, it's just three different methods of how you can get that offer, depending on the preference of the visitor. We find that that trifecta of three calls to action outperforms just one. Now that's something that took a hmm. lot of time and a lot of testing to, to figure out. That works really well for law firms, but you know, for other clients, it doesn't work as well because other industries, people might, you know, feel that that's annoying, right? Seeing a live chat thing pop up, seeing a form, seeing a phone call, uh, call to action on the same page. So I'm not, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I think it just comes down to figuring out what's going to be best for that audience and how we can, you know, answer the questions that they have. Yeah, no, that, that answers it perfectly. Cause I, I really just want to know, like, what is something that really is specific to a, a very specific type of business yeah. or, or, or client, right? Where you figure out, Hey, this is the thing that works. We don't really know why <laughs> we can't like replicate yeah. this across other types, but for this type of business, for this type of customer, this seems to work really, really well. Yeah. And that's a fantastic case study. Getting a little bit meta about Earnworthy, what's mm -hmm. it been like going from kind of zero to one to, you know, kind of scaling as an agency rather than just like a, a freelance consultant? Yeah, it's, it's scary. You know, I'm, you're, you're responsible for other people and you're, you know, a lot busier, <laughs> I guess, you know, being a freelancer, I liked that I could just turn it on and turn it off. You know, I could say, you know, I don't, I don't want to deal with this right now and I'll just be on vacation basically. But with an agency, there's really no, uh, I mean, I see some agencies do that where the founders are out for vacation, but honestly, I don't, you know, I don't think that's fair to the clients because I think clients look at agencies differently than they look at freelancers. They look at an agency as we expect this work to get done no matter what. <laughs> I don't care right. what the problems are. We don't care about your individual problems. And you sort of have to be open to that. So if you are thinking of making that jump from freelancer to sort of agency mindset, be expect, you know, expect that type of response. Like you can't just tell a client, oh, I'm, I'm out sick today. So therefore the work's not going to get done. No, they're hiring an agency because you're supposed to have redundancy. You're supposed to have processes in place and it's supposed to be bigger than just you. Otherwise just stay as a freelancer, I think. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Talk to me about growth marketer a bit. How did that start? And what does it look, look like today? 
Yeah, you know, I think it started because the podcast that I did since 2015, Growth Marketing Toolbox, sort of took off and and doing it's still doing pretty well. We get about 10,000 downloads a month, wow. which is not like a, a huge amount, but for like a very specific niche marketing audience, you know, it's it's created this nice little community and this nice little following. And I realized there's a lot more that I could build on top of that. And so I wanted to separate it from Earnworthy because I wanted Earnworthy to be the service business and I wanted um, growth marketer to be everything else, like the education and the sort of the learning arm of, of what I do. And so growth marketer is sort of the umbrella that houses the podcast growth marketing toolbox. I also have a second podcast called learn growth marketing, which is geared towards a bit more of a, like a beginner audience with shorter episodes that are not interview format. And I know you have multiple podcasts as well. So I know <laughs> you understand the, the craziness of managing oh, yeah. multiple podcast and every day I'm like, why do I have two podcasts? I don't know. <laughs> and then building on top of that, I launched a newsletter almost a year ago because come on, everybody was launching a newsletter last year yeah. and that's taken off. We have over 3,400 subscribers now. It's a free newsletter where I just share the very best growth marketing news tools and insights. So it's like a curated newsletter once a week, every Thursday. And eventually later this year, I want to launch a community aspect of it as well to sort of bring everything together. So we'll have the podcast, we'll have the newsletter, we'll have the blog, and then ideally we'll have a nice little community going. Yeah, it's fun. Well, I can't recommend it enough. I'm, yeah. I'm both jealous and, uh, and fascinated by getting the podcast to 10,000 10, downloads a month. I think that's definitely actually a very good and celebratory milestone to reach because oh, not everyone gets even close to that. And especially since we have a lot of overlap in the audience, what were the keys to getting to that point? And you've been doing it for a long time, right? Five years is yeah, nothing to scoff at, but what if you can kind of get tactical or even just think about maybe what some of the, the factors were to, to growing the podcasts? Yeah. So I think number one is consistency. So, you know, early on, I was not very consistent, but then I got into this habit where I try never to miss a week these days, unless it's like a holiday or something. So doing at least one episode a week, I think consistency is key because people are going to look for that. And and it got to the point where people would email me and say, Hey, why don't, why is there no episode today? It's Monday. Where's my episode? Mm. And so I realized like you actually, you owe it to your listeners to be consistent. And that I think goes hand in hand with getting help with the podcast. So early on I was doing the editing, I was doing everything. Nowadays I don't do the editing. I have a fantastic audio engineer that I work with. And then I have a content marketer that I work with who helps me get the show up on the website, distribute all the social posts, do all the engagement on social media around the show. And that has been a huge relief because now I can focus on just having really good interviews, booking really cool guests, and sort of leave the, the technical details up to them, um, which helps me remain consistent. So I think that is another key. And then getting really good guests. When I got Seth Godin on the show, which was like probably a year, a year ago now, I saw a huge spike in downloads. Mm. So if you're able to book really well-known guests that are relevant to your audience, that's gonna help you as well. Yeah, that's interesting. For, for guests like Seth Godin, or just other kind of big name guests, do you think it's more that like the appeal to your audience or like kind of the minimal distribution that you have kind of like brings more attention because you know, it's a, more people are interested in it because of the guest or was it something in particular that the guest did that brought you more listeners? Like they shared it with their um, audience. Yeah. That's interesting. No, you know, I don't even think Seth really shared it that much. <laughs> I think it's the social proof and just the, the name recognition yeah. of, 
people then associate, well, this is the caliber of show that Seth Godin will appear on. So therefore, it's something that I should check out at least once. And then, you know, that sort of gets people into that cycle where if they like it, they're going to subscribe as long as you're reminding them to. And then you can leverage these high profile guests, you know, you know, in a nice, positive way to get other high profile guests mm -hmm. like, hey, you know, Seth Godin was on the show. I'd love to have you on the show. So I'd say a lot of it is more to do with that social proof and the positioning you get out of it. And, you know, in, in return, they get a great opportunity to talk about a book or something that they're launching in front of a highly tar targeted audience of 10,000 people for just, you know, 30 minutes of their time. Yeah, I love that. I was interviewing Jay Klaus. I don't know if you know Jay, but mm -hmm. yeah, he was talking about how when he launched his podcast, Creative Elements, I think Seth Cohen was actually his his like first guest and like the number one wow. podcast that he has. And Gee. he was kind of, we were, we were talking about like this whole sort of, you know, guests as a distribution strategy for podcasts. And he was like, yeah, I didn't really want to do the whole, like, you know, you, you do like the C level kind of influencers and then the B level. And then that gets yep. you like the A level. He's like, I just wanted to jump straight to the A level. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he, he had known Seth and so he had a connection. So he managed to get him on there. But I love that because like you said, once you have someone like that on the podcast, like I've been really fortunate to have Rand Fishkin and, nice. and Heaton and actually I, I need an intro. I want to get Rand on the show. Yeah, please do. <laughs> I would love to, but actually I emailed Seth and he said no, because I don't, I didn't oh. have the track record of, you know, a bunch uh, of, he said he wanted, he wanted to wait till we were at about 50. So we're about halfway there and I'll get Seth on there eventually, but it's true though. This, that social proof is really, really huge. Yeah. But, you know, on the flip side, I've also gotten emails, very surprising emails from people that say, you know, I'm so glad that you don't only have like the people that are always on the podcast mm. circuit on your show. Like I do try to highlight a lot of marketers who right. it's it's their first podcast ever. And I take a big risk with that because if you have one bad episode, you you lose people, obviously. And so I think it is important not to just have the regular you know, there's there's probably 50 marketers that are known in the podcast world as being the go-to people that do interviews. I like to sometimes, or more often than not, go beyond that and try to get people that are that have interesting stories to tell. Maybe they've never been on a podcast, and it seems like listeners appreciate that because I have received quite a few emails where people are like, you know, I'm really glad that you have folks who are not well-known because it's a whole different side. And I think it's also more relatable to the average marketer when you hear somebody just getting started who has an interesting story to tell. Right, right. Yeah, I think podcasting has gone through such an interesting evolution because a few years ago, if you were to start an interview-based podcast like you did, and you interview big name, pod, or, uh, big name guests, they may not have ever, you know, that, that could be like the first appearance for someone like them. Yeah. And yep. so like the fact that you interview them is like a big deal and it's very interesting and, and novel. But now <laughs> it seems like, you know, especially everyone new, or everyone noteworthy and influential has been on at least one podcast before. And yeah. so now they're yeah. just kind of making the rounds in the circuit and it becomes less interesting. So it's then like the actually speaker circuit, you see the same people at the events. <laughs> right, right. So then actually the differentiator becomes, you know, who are the, the new people that you're highlighting or the, the up and comers or right. the people who don't even have a name, which makes it a really mm -hmm. kind of interesting dynamic. Looking back on people that you've interviewed and stories you've heard, lessons that you've heard people take away from themselves, like what are some of the maybe top or or maybe just top of mind kind of case studies or examples from people that you've interviewed through the Growth Marketing Toolbox podcasts? I would say there's a common theme throughout a lot of episodes where people they they all sort of 
well, let's see, how should I put this? The show is about tools and I was, it's about marketing tools, right? Growth marketing toolbox. I always expect the guests to share tools that they use, but I've been surprised at how many guests have said, you know, I don't really use a lot of tools. And so there's sort of this little theme that I'm noticing where uh, guests don't want to talk about tools, which is kind of weird because they want to be on the show that's basically about marketing tools, but they don't want to talk <laughs> about tools. But I realize it, it's, it's striking a larger point here where it, it's, you know, they're basically saying that the tools are not as important as your strategy which is very important because I don't want to be known as like the tactics and tools guy because tactics and tools change and they're not long-term. You know, I would much rather talk about strategy a lot of times. It just so happens that, you know, a lot of what I've done over the years has been tied to specific tools and tactics and the show is all about tools and tactics. And so I guess, you know, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear how many guests have said, you know, let's not worry about the tools. Let's focus on the strategies. And so even though it's called growth marketing toolbox, I think lately, we've definitely had more guests who focus more on strategy rather than just, you know, like when the show first started, I would literally have people come on and I'd be like, okay, what's in your marketing toolbox? Let's go through every tool. And it would be a 30 minute mm. rundown of 20 different marketing tools. And now it's like we focus on one specific topic, let's say cold email outreach or Instagram marketing. And then, you know, the guest will sometimes weave in some tools here and there, but it's mostly about the strategy. And I think that's a much better approach. I think tools are important, but you know, there's tool overload as you probably saw Scott Brinker's uh, MarTech 8,000, where there's like right. 8,000 different tools. You know, it's, it's overwhelming how many tools are out there for marketers to spend money on. Understanding the strategy of how to deploy those tools effectively and how to use fewer tools to get more done I think is really, it's very similar to like you just mentioned the podcast evolution where like the yeah. marketing technology space has just exploded and it's become so complex and what used to be again, very new and novel and, uh, it gives, it gives you a, a really good edge. Now this for all up and played out, it's very mature, right? There's uh, it's very difficult to find a tool that, that does make a huge difference. You know, we're mm -hmm. now we're, we're really getting to the cutting edge with tools like unbounce, you know, smart traffic yeah. and we have multivariate testing. It's like, wow, well, this is, you know, back in the day, you could just throw up a, you know, a chat bot and <laughs> your conversion skyrocket, yeah. <laughs> yeah, things like that. Nope. Switching gears a little bit. I have a couple of kind of rapid fire questions, but sure. what's something on the horizon, maybe like a emerging technology or a tool or even tactic that you're experimenting with that has you excited or even just that you're sort of have a close eye on? Yeah. So conversion, conversion optimization is my, is my focal point. And I think the convergence of conversion optimization and AI artificial intelligence is just amazing. I think smart traffic is the first iteration of what we're seeing there, but now you're seeing all of these copywriting tools that are just amazing. Like one that I find most interesting right now is called conversion, uh, conversion.ai, right? Or is it conversions.ai? I always forget like, Dave. Yeah. yeah conversion.ai Dave Rogamoser from proof. They're just doing some amazing stuff over there where I think, you know, and I got into like a debate on, on, LinkedIn a while back with some copywriters about this because it's like, are they going to replace copywriters? Are they going to augment copywriters? I think it's more of an augmentation, just like, you know, there's still going to be a need for conversion optimizers. They're not, you're not just going to flick a switch and turn smart traffic on, and you're never going to need to hire a marketer again to set up a, a, a proper test. So I think in the same way, it's sort of this superpower that you can then give to a copywriter using a tool like conversion AI, or there's a whole bunch of other ones. There's Wrightsonic, there's Broca, there's 
copy copysmith there's copy.ai there's a whole bunch of these tools they're all working on the gp3 3 model where it's using like this open ai framework to make it easier for copywriters to get their work done and also to get inspired by what's possible so i think that's a really cool space to to keep an eye on and how all of this is going to sort of converge between conversion optimization a b testing copywriting and we also see it in products like Google ads and Facebook ads with all the recommendations, right? So these AI powered recommendations, and then you have, you know, all these different ways to run ad campaigns where you're just uploading assets and you're letting the algorithm figure out the right combination of headlines versus creative versus descriptions and put it all together. So as all of this con converges, I think it's just going to make marketers jobs a lot easier. It's not going to replace us, but it's going to give us a, a lot more tools to work with. Yeah, I I, th I completely agree. I think our jobs are going to get easier <laughs> over time, which yeah. is great, you know, because then again, it really gets down to the cutting edge and you can focus more on the fundamentals and the principles mm -hmm. and the strategy rather than yeah, the nuances exactly. of the tactics and the tools yeah, yeah. and, you know, having to, to do a lot of the grunt work. What about a yeah. sort of a long held industry belief or best practice? that you don't necessarily agree with. Maybe you sort of have like a different opinion or view on something that a lot of people tout as something good or, or, or true. Ooh, I would say, you know, there's a lot of obsession over traffic. Like how can I get more traffic? How can I run better Facebook ads or, or Google ads? And I would say, I think um, Ryan Dice from growth uh, from digitalmarketer.com said this a while back. He's like, you just go to the traffic store and you buy traffic, right? It's getting easier. You mm. go to Facebook and you buy traffic. You go to Google and you buy traffic. It's not that complex. The complexity, I think, is once you get that traffic, how do you get it to convert? And this also applies to SEO. Um, if you're getting organic traffic, you know, a lot of SEOs obsess over how many visits they're getting to the site, but then people get to the site and it's like, what are you, what are they doing on the site? They're just bouncing like in two seconds. So I'd say, you know, a long held belief is, oh, let's obsess over traffic. I think you should first obsess over conversion optimization and what people are doing on your site. What are people doing on your landing page? How can you make that better? How can you get more effort from every visit? How can you get uh, more conversions? And then it's just a matter of scaling up, going to the traffic store and buying traffic or generating it organically if, if SEO is your thing. But, you know, there's a lot of marketers out there that seem to focus 90% on traffic and 10% on conversion optimization. And that just doesn't make any sense to me. Love that point of view. I love it. What about something that you've bought recently, a recent purchase, you know, so it could be as mundane or as kind of cool as you want, but I'd love to do kind of like a job to be done, kind of reverse customer, a customer journey interview, if you will. Yeah. Resistance bands. They're called Undersun, Undersun Fitness Workout Bands. Yeah. So how'd you find them? Or first of all, like why, why did you want to buy one of these? Yeah. Well, obviously, you know, with, with COVID not being able to go to the gym, I wanted to work out more efficiently at home. You know, I've had, I have kettlebells and all that other, other stuff, but I wanted something a little more portable. And I remember, I think I, I was looking on YouTube at just like how, you know, that's so many things start with a YouTube search. Hmm. That's why they're the number two search engine. And I remember looking up resistance bands and there's like this one guy on there that's like the resistance bands guru and it just so happens he has his own line of resistance bands uh -huh. called undersun fitness and uh, you know because i liked the the content of his videos and because the product looked really good has really good reviews i ended up buying it i think on on amazon and it was a really good purchase 
why why Amazon? Did he have his own site, or was it more for <laughs> the the shipping yeah. or the convenience? It's you know it's so much easier just to buy on Amazon. Everything's already loaded up there. It's like two clicks versus uh, I gotta go sign up. I know it's it's getting easier these days with Shop Pay and Shopify and all the you know the the integrations there. But I think it's just it's really hard to beat Amazon. Yeah. Yep. It's true. Love it or hate it. It's true. I'd also love to take a peek at your personal swipe file, if you will, into some marketing examples or campaigns that you think are worthy of saving or, you know, brands you admire, you know, Super Bowl commercials, for example. Are there a few examples or things that uh, come top of mind that you could walk me through? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for my swipe file, I I think you also use this product called My Mind, right? Yeah, that's I've been using that lately. It's, I think I he- actually heard about it from you on Twitter. What an amazing product, mymind.com. Uh, so easy to save stuff. You can search. It 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 has the optical character recognition so you can search in the text of things. So now that's like my number one method for saving or Love for it. creating a swipe file. But yeah, so like I'd say the my favorite type of thing to add to a swipe file is classic advertisements. Mm. So I think a lot of listeners will probably know like the man in the Hathaway shirt, right? Which is a classic print advertisement, or there's a, there's one that's, it's the headline is they laughed when I sat down at the piano, but when I started to play, and then it's a story. And there's another one, it's at 60 miles an hour, the loudest noise in the new Rolls Royce comes from the electric clock. Mm. And so these are all print advertisements and it's, it's hard to explain them without actually seeing them. But if you search for any of those headlines, you'll be able to see them. But I think what I really like about classic 20th century print advertising is that they had to do so much with so little because they didn't have analytics. They didn't have all the flashy graphics that we have access to. And so by looking at what these copywriters were able to do just with words and with just a few images here and there, I think it really humbles us and it, it puts in perspective how easy our job is compared to what they had to do to the point where, you know, we're still talking about these advertisements decades later. So I think that's a, a testament to how well they did back then. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. I mean, they really are unmatched from a copywriting perspective. I was looking yeah. the other day, I actually think I was, when I was uh, doing some research for you, one of the ones that you had mentioned maybe on Twitter was uh, the, the thousand songs in your pocket oh, by, yeah. by Apple. Yep. Just like maybe one of the greatest yeah. of all times up there. It'll Simple. it'll be with the classics, with the, uh, you know, yeah. the 50s and 60s. They'll be talking about that in, in 30 years on whatever the next iteration of a podcast is. Right, right, oh, back exactly. Back in the day, this company called Apple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Well, final question for you. When I say everything is marketing, what does that mean to you? What, what comes to mind? Huh. I would say everything is marketing, I think, means that we all have the ability to persuade. We all have the ability to help people make decisions because at the end of the day, what is marketing? It's it's persuading, persuading someone to take action, not in like a sleazy car salesman, used car salesman way, but in a helpful way. Like, you know, there's a lot of different options out there, no matter what choice you, you need to make in life. And I think it's a it's the duty of a marketer, a legit ethical marketer to help people make the best decision for them, even if that decision is to do nothing. Like, I think that's something else marketers forget is, you know, you're not just choosing between this brand or that brand, you're also choosing between doing nothing. And as a marketer, we need to help people make that decision. Like, why is our product or service uh, or solution the best? And so everything is marketing means you can take from your entire life experience and help people make a better decision, whatever it is that they that need to decide to do. 
Nicholas, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing everything today. Seriously, great, great insights and appreciate you being so transparent and uh, bestowing upon us your wisdom. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Corey. Thanks again to Nicholas for coming on the show and sharing everything today. Make sure to check out and subscribe to Growth Marketer Weekly, his newsletter. And if you can, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank him for sharing everything, especially his secret on growing a marketing agency, and let him know what you learned. And to wrap up, here are a few of my takeaways. As I mentioned in the show, I had never really thought about using partnerships with technology companies and being listed as a partner, expert, or service provider as a distribution method for agencies and consultants, but it's really a genius tactic. And I also, of course, loved all the frameworks that Nicholas mentioned. This one in particular stuck out to me, the ADO marketing method, audit, development, experimentation, and optimize. That one was great. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast, as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.